Good morning, church. Here is the word of the Lord from the first of Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of a full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Raul, for reading us the word uh, this morning. All right, so uh, welcome to our church. If you are new here with us, uh, welcome to our service. Uh, thank you for uh, deciding to join us here this morning for, uh, for worship. Um, I'm glad that you've, you're here. Um, again, if you haven't uh, filled out the Connect card, please uh, get one at the front desk and just quickly sign that so that we can touch base and I can say hello digitally uh, to you and uh, maybe we can grab a cup of coffee and, and touch base and chat. Um, if you're just joining us today for, um, for worship, uh, we are kind of just under halfway in terms of our sermon series here on the book of First Timothy. Uh, this letter was written uh, by uh, an apostle called Paul uh, to a young pastor named Timothy in a church located in Ephesus, or in other words, today would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul was giving instructions to not just Timothy, but to the entire church in Ephesus on how to be a church and what it means to be a church community. So he opens his letter to Timothy by encouraging him to stop those in the church community who are teaching false doctrine and theology. This is because wrong teaching leads to wrong living out of our faith. And if we arrive at Scripture without understanding context, then we will often be led to all kinds of strange and weird applications for today. It's because what was meant for the original hearers of the culture of that time may not apply to people today in our culture. Then we had Pastor Ralph, uh, who led us through a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, about prayer and how we ought to be praying as God's people, praying for the government, praying for people in leadership, basically praying for everyone. And then last week we looked at a passage in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 9 to 15, where Paul, in our modern-day context and perspective, gave some pretty restrictive instructions for Timothy and the church. He says that he did not allow women to have authority over men, and he did not permit them to teach in the church at Ephesus, that they were to be silent. Now, looking at the context of what was taking place at that time in Ephesus, there was a major influence of a goddess named Artemis. And her influence was 
uh, very prominent in the city of Ephesus. The teaching of Artemis and her cult, her following, uh, filtered into the church of Ephesus and began to wreak havoc among the people there. And so in response to this division within the church caused by the women who had formerly associated themselves with Artemis, Paul instructs the women to learn in quietness and full submission to the church's leadership. Now, you have to understand at that time, women actually didn't have any opportunity to learn. So the fact that Paul says that they must learn in full submission to the authority of the church at that time was a giant leap forward. Now, in our application today for a verse like that, I think there are two things that we can take away from. First, if there's false teaching in the church, whether it comes from a woman or a man, uh, it needs to be stopped. There needs to be an appropriate place for discussion and conversation, not in the middle of service or worship, but they also need to be given an opportunity to learn from others in the church who have the ability to teach. Secondly, women have a significant place and role in God's kingdom family, the church, the body of Christ. And so now we arrive this morning in our passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now as we read, as was read to us by Raul this morning, this passage is about church leadership. And this is an important passage for us to understand because our AGM is in about two weeks where we will have as members of the church an opportunity to prayerfully select our new elders to serve. So what does Paul say about leadership? Well, this sermon is going to be broken up into two parts. The, this, the, the, this morning, we're going to be looking at leadership in the form of eldership. Next week, we're going to look at the remaining passages from verses 8 to 16, and we're going to look at leadership in the form of deaconship. And yes, there are, there's a difference between elders and deacons. All right, so the passage that was read by Raul, a mouthful, right, in terms of, of what Paul describes as someone who would be qualified to serve as an elder. Now, traditionally, I'd say that many churches, but not all, have viewed these verses as being limited to men as the people who can serve as elders in the church. However, in recent years, especially within our own denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, there was a national vote uh, a number of years ago that determined that every local church in the alliance could make a decision for themselves pertaining to their church context and culture, whether they wanted to allow women to serve as elders. So not, not all, just because the national uh, kind of um, meeting voted to pass and say, yes, we, we recognize that women can be elders, does not mean that every church in the denomination voted the same way. Now, can women serve as elders in the church? Well, based on our passage this morning, I am going to argue yes. Paul did not limit the role of eldership to simply men. Now, Paul writes, here, here he begins, he writes, here is a trustworthy saying Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So right off the bat, we see that it says, Paul writes, whoever aspires to be an overseer, whoever aspires, whoever desires this role. In other Bible translations, such as the New International Revised Version, it writes, if anyone wants to be a leader in the church, the New Living Translation says, if someone aspires to be a church leader, So for most of church history, churches and church leaders have understood the role of eldership to be for men alone. 
But we're going to look at our passage here this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and see that Paul didn't limit the role of eldership for just men. Even if most of our translations, the NIV, the ESV, uh, have actually translated to include based gender-specific qualification, even in our passage here this morning. Now, in the original language, Greek, Paul actually doesn't use a pronoun to describe the qualifications of an elder. So there is no he, there is no she. Okay? He only says that if anyone, meaning that if a man or a woman aspires to serve the role of eldership in the local church, they should be given the opportunity as long as they are qualified. If Paul wanted men specifically to serve as elders over the church, he would have said, if any man aspires to be an overseer, desires a noble task in the Greek. But he doesn't actually say that. He opens it up and seems to have left out the pronoun, the gender-specific pronouns, he or she. As long as the people are qualified to serve in those positions. In other words, eldership should be encouraged. But as people are encouraged to serve in this way, because it is an honorable way to serve God and His church, it also needs to be understood that there are certain qualities for serving as an elder that we should be looking at. There are expectations, and serving as an elder should be taken seriously. This is not a role or a position at the church where anyone can just apply. Well, sorry, anyone can apply, but not anyone can just apply, you know, yeah, right. So um, there are expectations. There are certain qualities, standards that Paul says that we should be looking for in an elder. So on a side, um, as we approach uh, you know, scripture in general, our attempts are always to try and understand what God is saying through the, with the word, right? Um, the authors of the book of the Bible wrote for a specific purpose to a specific group of people So when we're reading or studying scripture, it's important to ask who the author of the book is, in this case it was Paul, and what message was he trying to convey to his original audience. And this is important because we are not the original recipients. Our goal is to discover and unpack the original meaning of the text, and once we have understood what the message to the original audience is, then we can make a leap to how it applies to us today, but not before. Now, with that being said, there are two ways to see Scripture. There is what we call a descriptive way, and there is the prescriptive way. So just as the words would indicate, descriptive passages in the Bible simply describe what is happening without giving a command or instruction on how to live. Prescriptive passages in the Bible are instructive. They are commands uh, of what we ought to or what we ought not to do, how to live, how not to live. They are, inst- they are instructions for us, for God's people. So the question with our passage this morning is, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, these seven verses, is it descriptive, right, describing what elders are like, or is it prescriptive? What do you guys think? Prescriptive or descriptive? It's descriptive, right? It's descriptive because it's describing what an elder in the church ought to look like. So what should the elders of the church look like? Well, we're going to look at the list of Paul's 
elder qualifications in three kind of batches or groupings, okay? So this is what Paul says in the first grouping. He says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now, if you've noticed, Paul uses the word overseer instead of elder, right? But in the same letter to Timothy, he will use the word elder instead of overseer. You say, well, are these two different positions in the church? No. He's referring to, yes, two different terms, but they are actually the same position. An elder is an overseer, and an overseer is an elder. At the end of the day, there's no real difference between the two. They perform the same role and function, which is why Paul uses the terms interchangeably in his letter to Timothy and the church. So there's a couple of things that Paul includes in this first grouping, right? That those who aspire to be elders in the church are to be above reproach. Now, I've heard this time and again, uh, you know, live your lives above reproach. An elder should live uh, above reproach. But what does it mean to be above reproach? So I have this interactive thing. I don't know if it's going to work this morning, but uh, Patek is going to help us. Uh, he's going to work his magic and see if we can do it. Um, so there is, I need you to go to a website called menti.com, M-E-N-T-I dot C-O-M. And then there's a code just on the screen. Uh, you would enter that into, your, uh, into the, the, the website, and then uh, it will bring you to a page where you can give one word answer uh, about what you think what above reproach means. So, for example, you could say, I think above reproach means godliness. So you can type that in, godliness, and then it'll appear on the screen as you do that. All right, did anybody submit? Okay, it's not appearing on the page. So I'm going to ask you what you submitted. <laughs> what did you submit as the word where you said, okay, I think this is what above reproach means? Oh, oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. That's so cool, right? Yeah, I love it. Okay, so there's a couple things there. No accusations, flawless, integrity, respectable, faultless, uh, Christ-centered, righteousness, no fault, um, com- compliant, trustworthy, perfect, holy. Okay, those are good, good words. If you haven't, uh, you can continue to put that up there. But you, okay, so you can see this is kind of what you know. Generally, you know, people in our church here think about what above reproach um, actually means. Good, thank you for participating in that. Um, so, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the word reproach is actually a legal word that indicates your innocence in the eyes of the law. It means that nobody can rebuke you or speak ill of you or make accusations about you that stick. There could be accusations made about you, but eventually your life and your conduct will free you of those accusations and you will be proved blameless. So I think I saw the word blameless there. To be above reproach means that your life is so consistent that your reputation is credible. You are an example worthy to be followed as a, and as an elder in the church, strive to live consistently with what you say and how you live. Is this possible? Yes, I believe it is. Because we, as people who profess Christ and follow him, have received the indwelling spirit of God in our life. We don't live above reproach on our own ability and effort. 
We live above reproach by the Spirit of God who indwells in us, empowers us. So some of us might think, does being above reproach mean that we live perfect lives? I saw that word as well, perfect. Um, No, it doesn't. That would be impossible to do, right? To be above reproach is not the call to live perfect lives. That's not what it means. It does mean that when we do sin, when we fall short, we confess it. We come to God and we confess it and we turn from it. It's called repentance. And we continue to follow, chug along, follow Jesus. Um, So how are elders to live above reproach? Well, Paul actually reveals several areas of how we can live above reproach. The first thing he mentions, uh, according to the NIV, is faithfulness to his wife. Now, some people uh, come across this and they're going to say, how is this consistent with the view that Paul allows both men and women to serve as elders? If one of the ways to live above reproach is to be faithful to the wife, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, The phrase faithfulness to his wife uh, in the ESV translation of the Bible, the English Standard Version, uh, says the husband of one wife. Now, this does not mean what I think we think it means. It does not mean that only men can serve as elders in the church. But some might say, but it says husband. So that would indicate it's a man, right? Um, Considering the context of their time, Paul most likely was excluding polygamists from church leadership. So he's saying, hey, don't take multiple partners. Be faithful to your one partner. Uh, A third century father, John Chrysostom, says this. He says, this Paul does not lay down as a rule, as if an overseer must not be without a wife, but as prohibiting his having more than one. So what Paul is talking about is whether men or women serving in the role of elder, they must be faithful to their spouse. Some of us might be thinking, why didn't Paul just write faithfulness to her husband then? Well, when a woman takes more than one husband, this is called polyandry. And there are actually some countries today that allow this form of marital practice. It's rare. It's very rare today. But it was even rarer back in Paul's day um, as well, even if, if it happened at all. Um, so I mentioned last week that women did not have rights during this time. They were often seen and treated like property. They were at the mercy of their husbands, which meant uh, that they could, their husbands could leave or divorce them for any time, for any reason they saw fit. And for most of world history, men have had the advantage in social status financial security, formal education, etc., etc. And this is why probably the Apostle Paul didn't include a woman of one man uh, in his kind of qualifications. Now, most of the things that Paul lays out in this first grouping make sense, right? So we're not going to go through every term or every, every qualification in great detail. But if you look at the list in this first kind of grouping, it's more about character than it is about gifting, Right? The qualifications are more about being, about integrity, about character, than it is about the ability to do something, other than the one qualification, which is to be able to teach, which is what we're going to get to in a moment. Um, what does it mean then? What does it mean that an elder is able to teach? Well, if we look at Paul's letter to uh, Titus, 
we can see that being able to teach means to hold on to sound and healthy theology and doctrine in order to refute unbiblical ideas and false teaching. In other words, the elder must be the model and to teach doctrine and theology with the power to save those who hear it, not to turn people away from teaching poor theology and poor doctrine. So elders must be able to teach, handle theology and doctrine, leading God's people to increasing godliness, Christ-likeness, and spiritual maturity. That is what it means to be able to teach. Growing people so that they become more and more like Jesus. Elders of the church must have this ability to teach what is true. The content of what they teach must produce in people a growing sense of holiness and Christ-likeness. Now, the second grouping of verses is where Paul says these words. He says, not, so an elder is not to be given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's family or God's church? Now, in this second grouping, I'd like to focus on the elder managing his own family and the church well, verse 4. What does this mean? Well, in the first century Roman world, the person who was considered the head of the house was generally the oldest male in the family. But women usually who were widowed or divorced could also be the head of the house. And they were generally responsible for, for, for providing for all of the members of their family. They were responsible for making sure that everything at home was running smoothly and well on a day-to-day basis. Now, most of us might think, well, churches at this time met in churches like we meet today, right? They didn't. They met in house churches. They met in people's homes. So, so by doing this, right, they're, they're, they're not meeting in churches like we see today, um, cathedrals in Europe and, and things like that. No. So the qualification for an elder to manage their home well was so that they would be socially respectable people and as a result, not giving the church a bad name or a reputation um, in the community or in the city and that they were in. Now, taking care of a church at this time was very much like taking care of a large family. If you have a large family, you might understand. Uh, If the elder was not able to look after and provide for their family, how could they then provide and look after the church? Because the church met in the homes and they often functioned like families. So Paul here is not looking at the, 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 the elder as a spiritual leader in the church. He's not looking at the elder so much in terms of how the elder is leading, but he is looking for the caring aspect of the elder's leadership, the caring aspect of the elder's leadership. And it can be really sad because some churches and some church leaders often neglect their families, their own children, for the sake of the ministry and for the sake of the church. Paul is clear that the elders need to look after their families. They need to care for and provide for their families. And yes, that means that sometimes our families need to come before the church and before ministry. 
I've seen my share of elders, church leaders, and pastors who have served the church to the point where they have neglected their own families, and it's a really is a detriment to their children. It's really tragic. Now, the opposite is true, right, as well. Yeah, some people who serve to the point where they're neglecting their families, but then you go to the, the extreme where they're always spending time with their children at the expense of actually not even serving God at all. Neither extremes are healthy. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a story about a man named Eli. He was the high priest at this time. He neglected his family, prioritized his ministry over his children, and as a result, his kids rebelled against him, against their dad, but also against God. Eli knew of his children's rebellion and rejection, but he didn't do anything about it. And as a consequence, there was a curse put on Eli's family. Nobody in that family actually lived a long life. Most of them died uh, young. And this is a warning, church, for us, not just for elders, but for the church, for all those who follow Jesus. Our first ministry is to our families. Our first ministry is to our families. A part of spiritual maturity is learning to prioritize our families. Well, balanced. For their well-being, for their spiritual health, and for their spiritual growth. Now our third and final grouping is found in verse 6 and 7. This is what Paul says. He says, um, the elder must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and will fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So here we're going to be looking at two qualifications for eldership. The first is that the elder must not be a recent convert, meaning that the elder must not be a new Christian, a new believer, a young Christian. And the reason for this is because the ministry of the elder at the church requires experience, both life and faith, spiritual wisdom, and spiritual understanding. These things usually come with time. And as the person has been faithfully walking with God over a period of time. So someone who is a young believer could very well fall into the trap of pride and arrogance, right? I'm not saying that they only fall into the trap of pride and arrogance. Older uh, men and women can also fall into the trap of pride and arrogance as well. So not just anybody can be an elder, this needs careful consideration, thoughtfulness, prayer. Right? And the mistake that so many churches tend to make is that voting our elders in, when we come to that place, it has become a popularity contest. Who knows who the most? Who knows other people, you know, the most influential people to vote that person in? It is not, church, a popularity contest. When the church elects their elders, as we will be given an opportunity in two weeks, there needs to be a serious consideration of these qualities and characteristics that Paul outlines for the elder. The elder is not a recent convert, but a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the marks of a spiritually mature person is humility. Becoming a humble person comes through being in God's presence over time. Because in that presence, in that practice of spiritual solitude and silence, 
over time, God forms us in the silence, in the quiet. And when we experience failure in life, nobody likes failure, right? But I would say the older you are, the more failure you experience. The younger you are, you just don't, I mean, if you're like six, you know, how many, how many years of a failure you've experienced compared to a person who's 65, you know? Now, obviously, the person 65 would experience a ton more, right? But failure has a tendency to humble us. The half-brother of Jesus, James, would say this, God opposes the proud. He stands against the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. The elder who is growing and becoming spiritually mature is learning to become more humble, and God lifts up that person because of their humility. The other qualification here that Paul speaks about is that the elder must have a good reputation among those outside the church. Um, This means that while those outside the church will sometimes, oftentimes, may not agree with the elders' uh, theological beliefs, they do acknowledge one thing. They acknowledge and they admit that the elder has integrity, has honesty, has character, and is a hard and diligent worker. If the elder does not have a good reputation with those outside the church, then they fall, as Paul says, into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What is the devil's trap? And have you and I fallen into it? It's when God's people live holy and godly lives on a Sunday, but live a completely different way during and throughout the week. It's a way for the devil to trap and accuse and bring dishonor and shame to God and to the church. Not not to crucible, per se, but to the church as a whole. Now, a Christian witness must be consistent. Does this mean that we have to be perfect? No, of course not. We're all broken. We all need the grace of God. With that being said, our witness needs to be consistent when we are at church And it needs to be consistent when we are scattered throughout the week in our work, with our relatives, among our friends. We can't be seen living one way at church only to live a totally, completely different way the other days of the week. So how do we live lives of beautiful witness um, to Jesus? Well, Matthew wrote in his gospel uh, these words. He says, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. The elder ought to have a good reputation with people outside the church, in the community, and live a life that is consistent with their profession of faith in Christ. This will draw people to God. We don't have to force it. When we live our lives consistent with the faith that we profess, with the God that we claim to follow, people will look at us and say, yeah, you're not perfect. For sure you're not perfect. You have your flaws for sure. But I can see a consistency. And that's appealing. A life that is inconsistent with faith, uh, an ungodly life, turns people away from Jesus. And we've seen this, right? 
I mean, we've, 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 I mean, over the course of the last two years, there have been stories in North America about pastors, mega, mega church pastors, who have fallen. Right? And as a result, it's been a, there's been a crisis of, of, of you know, brothers and sisters in the church now deconstructing their faith until, it's, until there's nothing there. Deconstruction is there for the purpose of reconstruction. But for so many today, as a result right, of, of, of elders, pastors, spiritual leaders, church leaders, not living the way consistently with the way that they're professing their faith, has caused others to also stumble and fall. And this was Paul's concern for the elders at the church. Now, I've mentioned our AGM is two weeks away. We have an opportunity to prayerfully select some new elders for our church. The passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks about the qualifications of what God expects of those who are elected into the role of eldership. And some of us might be like, man, that's really scary. You're right. We should be scared to a degree. We should be frightened because it is a big responsibility. We shouldn't, we shouldn't never have, we should never take step into the role of eldership lightly. We should take with heavy consideration and thoughtfulness what this would mean and what it would demand um, out of us. But it is an honorable position. In fact, I encourage everyone to thoughtfully and prayerfully consider serving as elders if you qualify. Now, somebody might ask, well, okay, you have a whole bunch of things that Paul lists. Is an el- does an elder have to have all of those things? Like, at, 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 at this time, do you have to be all of that in your life right now? I, th- I would say I don't think that's possible. I think there are certain areas that we, we fall short. But I would say there has to be, if there is a desire to pursue some of the things that Paul lists out, if we fall short, we're like, hey, I want to grow in this area. I want to mature here in my character and my integrity. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I think the takeaway this morning is that we look at these qualifications of an elder and we are invited and challenged to pray for our elders. Are you praying for your elders? Have you been praying for your elders over the last several years? We need to pray. The devil is mentioned twice in verse 6 and 7. And the reality is that elders and spiritual leaders of the church are often the object of spiritual attack. And so we must pray for them. We must cover them, their families, their children, their ministries, so that they may lead and serve you, church, well, with all wisdom and discernment. These are your elders. And so we must pray because if our spiritual leaders fall, then many others fall away as well. And so may God empower our current elders as they serve faithfully in the years to come. And may God raise up new elders to serve his people moving forward here at Crucible. Let's cover our elders in prayer. They need your spiritual support. Will you commit this year covering and praying for our elders in prayer. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that you are faithful and that you have a structure for the church. Thank you. Without it, I think it's a mess. We, we wouldn't know how to operate. We wouldn't know how to function. But you've given us um, a structure that in every church, there should be um, a group of elders, qualified men and women elected into these roles and positions to serve the body of Christ. And so, Father, as we approach um, towards our AGM in about two weeks, we want to pray. We want to ask you for wisdom. We want to ask you for discernment. We want to ask you for a thoughtfulness as we consider prayerfully um, these qualifications as we consider nominating and electing um, new elders for this season. We thank you for the elders who have served over the course of the last few years. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for their service. Thank you for their wisdom. And we continue to pray as they step away and rest that, God, you would fill their lives with more of your goodness. Teach them. Give them places of spiritual rest, emotional rest, physical rest, and that they would allow new brothers and sisters to step into the role of elders to continue to lead the church. Thank you for this uh, word this morning. We ask that you would challenge us um, to not just choose elders, but to pray for them consistently. Thank you for hearing our prayers this morning, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.